When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, our regular reflection on all the goings-on in the cricket world, particularly the international world at the moment, with three test matches uh, underway and finished last weekend. And all of them, interestingly, won by the home team by an innings. Of course, England losing heavily to New Zealand, Australia beating Pakistan and Bangladesh losing the second test in a row to India, all by an innings. So we'll sort of ask some questions about what's to be done about that, particularly with England. Also, later in the programme, another little story. This concerns the Ashes Urn, which is making its own trip to Australia, a rare visit away from its cabinet in the MCC Museum. So we're going to have a look at the whole history of the Ashes Urn, how many times it's been away and what's happening to it this time. Maximum security as it makes a, a little visit of its own with its own business class seat to Australia for a special exhibition. Simon, you've been in Mount Maganui. Actually, the weather has looked absolutely incredible. That's the, the one sort of high point for you, I suppose, is five days of, of interesting cricket in just glorious conditions. It's been absolutely fantastic, the weather. Debut test match at the Bay Oval. They could have not had better weather for it. Five days of unbroken sunshine. An interesting game of cricket. It wasn't totally captivating the whole time. The pitch was very flat, which actually, when you think about it, um, it, it does no credit to England whatsoever. The fact that really on this pitch, they should have not lost this game. They should have been good enough to score enough runs to challenge this New Zealand side. So much went wrong for England uh, this week, but huge tribute to the ground staff and those who organised uh, the, the first ever Test match at Mount Manganui. Uh, you know, it would be great to come back here and teams will enjoy playing at the Bay Oval. It was it was a fantastic experience, really well done. The crowds were decent as well, and uh, you know, let's hope they get another Test match uh, fairly soon. Let's hope the pitch is a bit more responsive to the bowlers, but New Zealand was still good enough to win the game. It adds to England's sort of portfolio of poor performances on flat pitches, doesn't it? Uh, just they don't seem to have uh, the the gumption and the the dedication to bat a long time on a flat pitch because there was really nothing in that wicket at all. Or uh, even more worryingly, in a way, find ways of getting wickets on flat pitches. Uh, uh, you just have to look at how dedicatedly the 
sort of lower order of the New Zealanders, particularly BJ Watling, played, just not ever giving it away, grinding out runs in a, in a boring but very effective way. And then somebody like Neil Wagner, who you know hasn't got the necessarily the sort of glamorous skills of of some bowlers around the world, but he's got that he's got incredible heart. He's, he's got that total commitment. He doesn't care what the pitch is like. He will make something happen. And, well, Pfeiffer on that pitch was outstanding. And what was even more outstanding about Wagner, I agree, is, you know, he's a really wholehearted uh, competitor. He hurls down his bouncers. He bowls lots of bouncers, whacks the ball into the pitch. He stands in the middle of the pitch, glaring at the batsman, has a word as well. What makes it even more remarkable in a way, even more noteworthy and praiseworthy, was that effectively New Zealand were down to three bowlers today. Trent Bolt was off the field with a, a side problem. Colin de Granholm's got an injury as well, so he, he didn't bowl after about quarter past 12, after getting rid of Joe Root to what was a, a very poor shot even by the captain's admission he said that himself you know he played two poor shots in the match so they were basically down to three bowlers and Santner bowled from one end most of the day and at the other end Southie who's got one of the slowest walk backs in international cricket and looked very tired by the end of it and Neil Wagner just kept on running in he's like a sort of bouncing ball he just can't keep him down superb effort England helped him of course uh, the Ollie Pope shot Oh, I can still see it now. A wide full toss, which was a slower ball, admittedly, which deceived him, pushed to cover where Santner took a, an excellent catch. Going away to his right, Josh Butler leaving the first ball with the second new ball, and it, it swung back in. And then Joe Denley actually got a snorter, the one that really took off and just flicked the underside of his glove. He played really well, Joe Denley, actually. Uh, he, he was very unlucky. But you know, Wagner making things happen. And you're right, England just were not able to do that. You know, There were times uh, uh, when England were bowling, especially when they came out on the, the fourth morning, and they, you know, they were talking positively about you know, restricting New Zealand's lead and getting among them. But I just, could not, I just couldn't actually see how they were going to get a wicket. I could not see where it was coming from. And lo and behold, uh, it didn't happen. I mean, it, it, was, it was actually impossible. Who was going to get the wicket? There was, there was nothing happening whatsoever. Um, it, it was a very flat pitch. I think the point being, really, is that England failed to get a huge score in their first innings, a really significant score in their first innings. They talked about batting long, and they weren't able to do it. They, they frittered their wickets away. They weren't ruthless enough. They got into a decent position on that first day. And you know they should have made 450, 500. They should have scored enough runs in that first innings to at least uh, draw the game, really. So uh, really bitterly disappointing from England. They, they, they are really, really struggling away from home. They don't have the firepower to win on flat pitches overseas and they lack the technical ability to bat long overseas. Yeah, and it looks like they've almost been spoilt by the Duke ball, certainly the bowlers, because in England, in English conditions, there's always something happening with that Duke's ball because it's got great shine and a, and a great seam. So you, you never lose heart as a bowler, really, because something's always going to happen. But with a kookaburra on these flat pitches... You need more than just an expectation, don't you? You need kind of this total commitment. And and, uh, it's like climbing a mountain almost. You've got to follow it all the way through. And there's no uh, point in in sort of semi-giving up halfway through and and throwing your hands up and saying, well, what can I do on here? And I, I suppose if you look at... I think the blueprint for winning a test match on, you know, a flat pitch with a kookaburra ball was shown by Australia... 
in that uh, first test at the Gabba in, against Pakistan, where, you know, those bowlers, Cummings, Stark and Hazelwood, yeah, I know they're a very fine trio of bowlers, but they've been brought up on flat pitches with the Kookaburra ball. They come in relentlessly, really hard for over after over, ball after ball, banging it in just short of a length. You know, the odd bouncer, the the, the glares, as you said, uh, with uh, Neil Wagner, that, that, that they just have this attitude that the batsmen are not going to escape from their relentless pursuit of, of wickets. They hunt batsmen down, and they hunted the Pakistanis down for 240 on the first day uh, on a very good pitch, uh, even though there was a first wicket stand of 70-odd. They just absolutely didn't give up those bowlers and kept on at them, at the batsmen, hostile, heavy ball, banging against the splice. And then, of course, they piled up this massive score, 580, when they had the chance to bat themselves. They didn't give it away, although Steve Smith did, interestingly. His his little innings was a sort of a strange illustration of what happens when you wait too long to go into bat. He came into bat at 330 for, for two, and he just... It, it was he he was overstimulated, over-eager to kind of make his presence felt and got out almost immediately. But it didn't matter because Marlis Lavashane played the Steve Smith role, 185, back, uh, backing up a uh, David Warner's 150. You know, colossal score, after which the, the, the result was an inevitability. And the same is true in Mount Manganui, really. Once New Zealand had that 600 and BJ Watling and Santner had ground out that, that big partnership lower down the order, it was probably only a matter of time before England lost. Yeah, and there were times during England's second innings where you thought they were going to save the game. When when Ben Stokes was batting with Joe Denley in the afternoon session, you thought, England could save this. And then Stokes dragged on a, a wide one and you thought, ah, oh, that's changed it. And then it all unravelled fairly quickly after that. Even in that opening partnership with Sibley and Burns, they were completely untroubled for 20 overs. And then Sibley chased a wide one to against Mitchell Santner, was caught behind, and, and Burns went to uh, sort of slog sweep one and top edge one in, into the onside. Two ordinary shots, really. And I think both players, they know, they know that they were ordinary shots. There were, there were too many ordinary shots from, from England players in the second innings and, and, in, and in the first innings as well. So, yeah, I mean, there, there were times when you thought they were going to save it, but once once New Zealand got those three wickets, I think, by the close of the of the fourth day, it was always going to be uh, tough for England on the final day. There, there was just a bit more in the pitch. There was just a bit of uneven bounce. There was something for the spinner to, to work with. England were a bit passive. I mean, in a way, you're damned mm. if you do and you're damned if you don't. I mean, their scoring rate was, was slow. They, they just focused on defence. I mean, the other side of it is if you're positive and then you, you get out playing positive shots. I said that, a few of them did anyway. So, I, I don't know. It was, it, it was just such a hugely frustrating uh, performance uh, from England. Chris Silverwood, of course, his first test as coach. I think it's fair to say things can only get better. Although Duncan Fletcher was a very successful coach for England. Of course, he started with that pasting in Johannesburg back in 1999. But I don't know that... There's something unconvincing about this England side, and we we've said for a while. And is it in the field? Is it in the field that, that to worry? Because Root, you know, under pressure, obviously as captain, I think he's only averaged thirty in the last year with the bat, and he does seem. I, I have the highest admiration for him, but there's a vacuum of ideas there. Is there? It almost like suggests that 
they need a leader of the attack somewhere, don't they? Which obviously Anderson has been superb at, especially in English conditions. There's something lacking in the bowling and in the the whole kind of ethos when they're playing on a flat pitch away from home, which Pat the Pat Cummingses and the Josh Hazelwoods and the Neil Wagners and Jet Trent Bolts are are such forceful characters and have such you know great records, but they're as I say they're sort of at the batsman all the time. They, they didn't feel as if there was that same essence when England were in the field. Well, there certainly wasn't when the the Watling and the Santner partnership got together. I mean, they tried things. They they did try things, but perhaps they tried uh, the unorthodox a bit too quickly. You know, they went to to banging the ball in short when uh, Santner came in. Perhaps they should have just bowled the length, bowled that off stump length. I mean, they, I think they felt there wasn't a nick off pitch, and, and they went to the short ball. They 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 opened with Sam Curran on on the. Uh, fourth morning after Henry Nichols had been hit on the head by Archer the previous evening. That, I didn't understand that. You'd think, OK, get Archer against Nichols first thing in the morning. But they also gave Sam Curran the, 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 the new ball as well, the second new ball. And you think, well, OK, I can sort of see what that's about. They, they feel that Curran might better swing the ball back in and get onto the batsman's pads and have him LBW. And then can always bring on Archer if, if Curran doesn't work after three or four overs. So, you know, they did try things. But it, you, you look at it individually. They've got the pace of Archer, the experience of Broad, the different angle of Sam Curran, the forcefulness of Ben Stokes, uh, the, the left-arm spin of Jack Leach. But, you know, it, the attack just did not add up. You know, the, mm. the sum of its parts, uh, you know, it seems quite convincing, but the, the whole was is just entirely lacking. There was there was nothing there at all. And they, they, you know, Stuart Broad, I spoke to him this morning, did an interview with him for the BBC, and he said, well, you know, it's just such a flat pitch. You know, we should have made more runs in in the first innings. Now, if he'd done so, it, it would have been absolutely fine. But even so, even so, you just feel that, you know, at one point New Zealand were three sixteen for six. And they got 600. You know, you feel they should have been good enough to, to limit them. Of course, that, you know, there was that moment when Ben Stokes dropped Watling on 31. And you, you could argue that was the most important moment in the match. He, he was on 31. He went on to get a, a double hundred. It was a straightforward catch, a slip catches go. It went down. So, you know, that was a, that was a, a really big moment. It, you know, it's funny. You talk about trends in a game, but actually sometimes just think about a moment. And that was, that was probably the biggest moment in the match. Mm. I, I mean, just going back to the Australian attack, the thing that marks them out for me is their fitness. You know, Pat Cummins, he just comes in ball after ball, charging to the wicket in 28 degrees, 32 degrees. And, you know, Neil Wagner's exactly the same. And I, I think that that's something that, that we have to uh, keep on uh, stressing to young bowlers coming into the England side, you you have to be super fit. It's a tough game. Bowling is incredibly physically hard, but you have to go. You have to do those hard yards to to, to make an impact. And I just feel that at the moment there is no bowler in that side who can really bust a gut ball after ball and ask those consistent questions of a batsman. It's, it's probably a mindset thing as much as it is a, a skills thing. Of course, the other slight miserable note on, on England's card was this uh, allegation of racial abuse for Joffre Archer. Yes, Joffre Archer tweeting that he was the subject of a racist insult. It subsequently came to light that this happened as he was walking off the field after being dismissed on his way back to the pavilion. 
The ECB have released an official statement saying that through the scrutiny of CCTV footage at the Bay Oval, the authorities there are trying to identify the individual or individuals responsible for the remarks and the investigation is ongoing. Um, the statement continues, whilst this is a relatively isolated incident, there's absolutely no place for antisocial or racist behaviour within the game. It's vitally important that all spectators feel able to come forward to report such behaviour and feel safe in doing so. Such a shame because the Bay Oval had staged such a successful and memorable test match. Any um, positives out of the game from England's point of view? Sibley looked okay, though he played a poor shot in the second innings. Uh, Joe Denley, you say, you know, played pretty well. Joe Roots obviously had a, a poor match. But what what else? Any any other good signs? Just racking my brains, Yoz. Uh, you know, it's, no, it's really hard to think of a, a positive thing. I think, De- yeah, Denley, I think, shaped well in this game, definitely. I think, you know, he got a really, really brute of a ball from from uh, Wagner today. And in in the first innings, he batted well. Uh, of course, Ben Stokes made, made 91. But in a, in a way, I mean, Stokes actually, you know, he really knuckled down in both first and second innings. He looked good. And then... I, he might say disappointing shots. Um, ben Stokes, you know, he likes to play in an expansive way once he gets going. Uh, on, on another day, perhaps in the first innings, on another day, he might have got a really big score. He looked as he was set for a big score. But in a way, you know, he's 91 when he sort of charged down the pitch and tried to whack it and got uh, caught at slip. It, it started England's decline. They, they were on course for a big score. We were thinking 450. But, you know, you, you can't... I mean, you can't criticise Ben Stokes. He is well. You can, but you, in, in in one sense. But you, what I'm saying is, overall, you know, he's had a fantastic year. He's the heartbeat of the team. Um, but yeah, you know, he, he had you know there was good and bad. I mean, he played really well for his 91. Dropped an absolute sitter at slip. Toughed it out today for a while and and was looking good. And as I was saying earlier, you know, when when he was there with Denny, it looked as if England could save the game. It, looked, it looked, gone flat. New Zealand looked a bit flat. And then he chased a wide one and dragged it onto the stumps. And after that happened, England, you know, subsided. Although you know, Archer and and Curran actually batted well in a, in a good, sensible partnership. But they they were just left with too much to do. There 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 were very few positives for England this week, and they've got you know big problems overseas. Uh, you know, we've talked about the you know they're going to be ups and downs. They've actually tried to adjust. Uh, sorry, they've tried to solve some of their structural problems that we talked about. You know, you know, we've talked about in the past, you know, they've had two or three wicket keepers in the team. Well they've just got the one now. Um, you know, they've tried to sort out the opening partnership. Uh, they put Joe Root to number four. They brought in Pope at, at number six. They've got some balance to the attack. But uh, you know, perhaps they just haven't quite got the quality of player. They've got some exceptionally good players, of course, but overall, have they got a strong enough team? Well, not not for overseas conditions. Uh, you know, even with Joffre Archer in the side, he was he was neutralised about forty overs in the second innings. Uh, Joe Root used him in short spells to start with, and longer spells. Uh, I know it's only one game. Uh, the first game of an intensive uh, winter program. But there is a huge amount of room for improvement. Well, what it means over the uh, weekend is that uh, India have taken a massive lead in the World Test Championship. They have 360 points from their seven matches. Australia just behind, and I say just, 116. They're in second place, 116 points. So 244 points behind India with a game in hand. England and New Zealand, of course, this series doesn't count. 
in the World Test Championship, but England at the moment are in fifth spot with only 56 points. So uh, a yawning gap opened by India. And in that match against Bangladesh, Virat Kohli made his 70th international 100. He is closing in fast on Sachin Tendulkar's 100 international 100s. I wonder if he's going to become the greatest batsman that ever lived. I mean, he's got that hunger. He's, his average in test cricket is 54, and in one-day cricket, ODI cricket, it's, his average is 60. And he, he just knows, shows no signs of letting up. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, phenomenal. Phenomenal batsman. It's hard to compare eras, isn't it? Don Bradman, obviously, is the, is the benchmark with that average of 99. How, how do you compare... Uh, one era uh, with another is one of the. It's, it's, it's great fun to try to do so. Who's the best batsman of all time? Sachin Tendulkar, a hundred international hundreds. I mean, he's probably the the modern uh, benchmark. Kohli's just a, a fabulous player in, in all three formats of the game. I'm mean, just actually just while we're on India, at one point you talk about the Australian bowlers being able to bowl on on flat pitches, and bowlers struggling overseas with you know with the Kookaburra ball. You know, India's pace bowlers you know they they can find some assistance they can get something out of pitches as well and uh, England going to India uh, next winter you you think about or going to India England have a trial by spin but it's not just going to be trial by spin it's also going to be trial by pace as well they've got lots of bases covered they are a fine all-round side and they are odds-on to play in the first uh, world championship uh, final who will be up against them well it, you know it looks like australia england struggling to make it so you know in, in, in this is really you know an, an era of of indian dominance in in test match cricket of course having said that they don't don't always travel that well either because last summer in england they were beaten 4-1 all people say well the games were quite close well, well they were but they still lost four of them uh, you know that that's the bottom line not easy uh, playing away from home yeah that's true uh, yeah, but you mentioned one word there, pace. And if you think about their their bowlers, the the, the attack, for instance, that played against uh, Bangladesh, Ishant Sharma, not not rapid, but but a clever bowler who keeps sort of adding new tricks, and he's tall. And then uh, Umesh Yadav and Mohammed Shami, both of them are similar to Cummins and and Stark. They run in hard, bowlers as fast as they can. I mean, Mohammed Shami was very unlucky in that series against England. And I, I still have this sort of image of him, the sort of cheeks quivering as he charged to the wicket over after over, whistled one past Alistair Cook's bat, but just didn't get the rewards. So you do need extra pace to, to take wickets with the Kookaburra ball or the SG ball in India and, and ideally a, a couple of good spinners as well. So well done to India. Uh, somehow teams have got to figure out a way of beating them at home. That's the objective for, for all countries, I, I suppose. OK, so that's our look back at the test matches over the weekend. And uh, looking ahead, of course, uh, England play their second test against New Zealand in Hamilton. And at the same time, Australia host Pakistan in a day-night match at the Adelaide Oval. And talking of Australia, they are about to receive a special present. The Ashes Urn is making a temporary visit. And after the break, I'll tell you why. Right, I'm in the workroom at the back of the MCC Museum, just next to the trophy cabinet where all the famous Test Match trophies are housed, including, of course, the Ashes. And I'm with 
Neil Robinson, curator of the heritages and collections at the MCC. You were, of course, in charge of the library, but you've sort of been promoted in a way. And we've got uh, the, the ashes urn here and also the bag that it sits in because you're transporting it to Australia. That's right. Um, the urn is going off to Australia f- for an exhibition called Velvet Iron Ashes, celebrating the history of the state of Victoria at the State Library of Victoria from the end of this month until the end of February 2020. Um, so we have the urn and the velvet bag to transport out there as, um, as securely as we can. So we're having a few practice runs of, of how to pack it up and make sure that the transportation is, is carried out with the minimum risk possible. Um, so how we, many times has it been uh, abroad? Since it out was, of its basically out of its cabinet. Um, since it was originally presented in Australia in the 1880s, it's returned there on two occasions before. Um, firstly, in 1988 to celebrate the bicentennial of the, the country, when it stayed in a, in a bank in Sydney and wasn't really viewed by a lot of people. More recently and more extravagantly, we had a, a, an exhibition tour around six state capitals in 2006-2007, which was attended by over 100,000 people over a 13-week period, which was really the, the first opportunity we had to tell the history of the urn to a purely Australian audience in their country and was a, a tremendous success for us. So this will be the third time the urn has returned to its home country. And uh, there is quite a sort of intricate procedure, not just the packing it up, which we'll do in a minute, but, but also the transportation. It's going into, into a, quite a big box, looks like one of those photographer's boxes with all their cameras in it, and that box, I guess, is going to, what, sit next to you on the plane, is it? That's right, it will have its own seat in business class um, right next to me. So it, Not uh, much conversation, then? No, no, but uh, at the same time, less snoring than might be anticipated from another neighbour on a long-distance flight. So, an advantage from that point of view. Let's talk about the urn a little bit before mm-hmm. you pack it up. Yep. Um, t- tell us about the history, because it, was, it came to the MCC possession in the 1920s, didn't it? That's right. When Ivo Bly, the former captain, died, mm-hmm. and it was presented by his wife. But how did it come by... The Blythe family in the first place? Um, the story goes back to 1882 when England first lost uh, at home to an Australian team. It happened at the Oval. It was a very, very dramatic match. England only needed 85 runs to win. Everyone thought they'd get it. They had WG Grace in, in their side. They had CT Studd in their side. He was the next, the, the coming man, really, of English cricket at the time. Nobody thought they were going to lose this match. But Fred the Demon Spofforth bowled them out. Um, they, they fell, I think, seven runs short. It was such a dramatic finish that one man reputedly bit through the handle of his umbrella. Another died of a brain hemorrhage, which is well attested in newspaper reports at the time. So the, the stress and drama must have been quite incredible on that day. And the reaction afterwards was mixed, in a way. It was ecstatic for the Australians. They were cheered all the way back to their hotel in the West End. But in the press, um, the England team got a rather less happy reception. And notably, a few days afterwards, a spoof obituary was placed in the Sporting Times by a journalist called Reginald Shirley Brooks, um, declaring the death of English cricket and the fact that the body would be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. So that's the first time you get the idea of the ashes coming into a cricketing context. And Brooks was also involved in the campaign to legalise cremation in the country at the time, which was still illegal. So it was a a way of his capitalising on the drama of the cricketing occasion to, to advance his political cause. But the joke caught on and Ivo Bly, who was leading an England team out to Australia that very winter, said that his team would go out to regain the ashes of English cricket, meaning the honour of English cricket. There were no physical ashes at the time. 
Billy Murdoch, the Australian captain, said that his team would defend the Ashes on behalf of Australia. So the, the stage was set for a terrific contest for the first Ashes series. Um, but even before the test series took place, Ivo Bly and the amateurs from his team were invited to stay at the Rupertswood home of Sir William and Lady Janet Clark, Sir William being the president of the Melbourne Cricket Club, the equivalent to MCC in Australia. And on Christmas Eve, they played a, a scratch match against some estate workers and other guests staying at Rupertswood at the time, which, of course, they won. And Lady Janet, being a bit of a humorist, um, thought that Ivo deserved a reward for his team's efforts on that occasion and decided that he should be rewarded with the ashes of English cricket, the honour of English cricket that his team had regained. So we took what she took what we think was probably a little perfume bottle or an ointment jar that she'd picked up on a trip to Europe, perhaps in a classical site like Italy or Greece. Um, a bale was burnt uh, from one of the wickets that was used in the match, and the ashes from that were placed in the urn, and it was presented to Ivo as the ashes of English cricket. Uh, and this, of course, was even before the Test Series had begun. So it's, it's curious to, to imagine why Ivo would have kept that memento were it not for the fact that it was a deeply personal time for him because not only was he out there to win a cricket series, he was also out there, as it turned out, to woo the lady of, uh, of his future dreams. He, um, he met at Rupert's Woodhouse uh, a lady called Florence Rose Morphy, who was a companion to Lady Janet, governess and piano teacher to the Clark children, and they fell in love. And subsequently, they married. Uh, Ivo became Lord Darnley. She became Lady Darnley. And the urn remained with them as a treasured personal memento because it reminded them of the time they'd met. And I suppose it love. was a sort of a symbol of their, of their meeting and their marriage, in a way. Absolutely. Um, and that, that's why it became such a treasured family possession for them. And... Really, when you, when you look at all the, the controversy there's been over the urn and the fact that there was such a demand when the Australians were having you know, such a, a big run of winning series in the, the 90s and early 2000s that the urn should travel and be recognised as, as a trophy, um, it, at, it, at its heart it's a love story between an, an English guy and an Australian girl, so it should be something that brings us together rather than ever dividing us in, in any way. And it's, I think it should be remembered that it, it's, it was a very personal thing for Ivo and not really associated with the, the Test Series at all. And it was in the, the Bly family, in their, in their home, until he, until he died, until Ivo died, right? And then, That's is that how good. it came by the MCC? Yes, um, Ivo died in 1927 and the urn was presented to us by his widow in 1928. And really, until that point, nobody knew of its existence outside the family. It... it the, the Ashes idea itself had, had disappeared for 20 years after the, um, the conclusion of that test series in Australia, which England won 2-1, by the way, although a, another match was played subsequently, so which the Australians won, so you might argue it was a two-all draw. But at the end of that tour, at the farewell dinner um, given to, to Ivo's team by the Melbourne Cricket Club, Ivo spoke and declared that the Ashes should be buried in a corner of the Melbourne Cricket Ground and forgotten. He didn't mean this little urn because he took that back home with him. He meant the idea of the ashes. And it was indeed forgotten for 20 years until Pelham Warner reignited it after his 1903-04 victorious tour of, of Australia by writing a book called How We Recovered the Ashes. So the ashes, the idea of the ashes reignited from that point. 
But the urn didn't really come back in until it was put on public display at the end of the 1920s here at Lord's. And it's only really by a, an association of ideas that has grown over the decades since then that the urn has become the symbol of, of the test series. And if you look back through the literature, a lot of the, the cartoons, a lot of the, the match programmes that featured illustrations, the representations of the urn right up to the 1980s weren't necessarily identical with, with the urn we have here at Lord's today. There were many, many different ways of, of depicting the idea of the ashes from, from trash cans to rather more ornamental Victorian type urns. So it really is curious that it's become so closely associated um, with the idea of this test series when for, for many decades it was really nowhere in the picture. Looking at it, it, people are often surprised by how small it is to start with. It's only six inches tall, isn't it? Yep. And it weighs you know, barely anything. What about the inside? Now, you say it's a bale. Other people have said in the past that it's a burnt veil. Mm. You've looked inside it. We've, we've x-rayed it as part of the um, condition reporting process initially before it went off on the 0607 tour. And we could see from that x-ray that there, there was a deposit of some kind in the bottom. I suppose we could take the cork out and have it analysed, but all that would really tell us was whether it was organic-based or, or something else. It, it, it wouldn't really tell us exactly what was in there or whether it was um, the ashes of a wooden bale or perhaps ashes from the fire grate. There is a story that while at um, Cobham Hall, the, the home of the Darnleys, it was knocked off the mantelpiece by a careless maid who you know, dusted the ashes back inside um, in, a, in a bit of a hurry. But um, it, that, may, that may well have some truth in it. So we don't really know what's, what's inside for sure, and there are various stories. When we tell the story of the ashes urn, it's our understanding of what the likeliest scenario is. And as for proving what's in there or otherwise, well, it, it adds to the mystique that we don't really know. So you've never been tempted to try and take the cork out? <laughs> Absolutely not. To be honest, Simon, I, I handle the item as, as rarely as possible, uh, and it's, it's something that we, we really revere for its mystique as much as anything else. And you said that you thought it might have been purchased originally in Italy, sort of in, what, the 1880s, as a memento of a a trip abroad by these Australians. That's right. We know that Sir William and Lady Janet made several visits to Europe. In fact, when um, Ivo and his team travelled out to Australia on the, the SS Peshawar, um, Sir William and Lady Janet were actually on the same boat. They were returning from a trip to Europe at the time. So it is tempting to think. If you look at the, the shape of the urn, small as it is, it, it does have a sort of classical Roman or Greek appearance of, of what might have been a, a larger original urn so, so it's tempting to think it might well have been picked up at a souvenir stall at Pompeii or some other classical site in the ancient world um, we'll never really know for sure because it's, it's 100 and, almost 150 years ago now um, but it's, it's as likely an explanation for its origin as any put it in Never hold it by the stem of the vessel here. That's much too fragile. So it's placed in its position, and you put your... Yes, your then we've got additional three layers of foam to go over the top to protect it from the, any damage to the case. There we go, three layers securely in. Close the case. Just clip shut like that. And there we go. We are fully packed up and ready to travel. And what's planned in, in Melbourne? 
Um, well, we, we open to the public on Tuesday, the 26th of November. So there is a big launch event um, featuring various dignitaries. I believe we're going to have a, a live video cast from Tim Payne, the Australian captain, who recently held a replica of the urn up at the Oval himself. So knows pretty much what he's talking about and certainly knows what the idea of the Ashes means to Australian cricketers. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be a, a huge, huge opening event, and I hope it encourages as many people as possible to come along and see the exhibition. And where will it be, the exhibition? The exhibition's held in the State Library of Victoria, which is in central Melbourne, and it's, uh, it's running for three months, or at least the Ashes um, display part of it is, is running for three months. So there you go. If you're in the Melbourne area, that's quite an interesting uh, little visit to go down to the State Library and check out the Ashes. I suppose it's appropriate that it's back at its origins, in a way, where it originally came from. And apologies to anybody who visits the MCC Museum over the next few weeks and finds no ashes urn in the cabinet, but there's plenty of other stuff to look at, so I guess it'll be back soon. Just one other thing, the new Cricketer magazine is out this week. Uh, A big issue all about the world of cricket and how it's expanding into corners of the globe that it hasn't really penetrated into before. Very interesting issue, and there is a special offer on the Cricketer this month. If you buy a subscription for a year, which is around about you get in return a 20 pound john lewis gift voucher or a copy of alistair cook's autobiography so it's a pretty good deal you go to www.thecricketer.com forward slash christmas and that offer is there for you thanks very much for listening and we'll be back to talk about england's exploits in new zealand on friday Podcast Network.